You're listening to Connection Church's podcast. Good morning, church. Ain't God good? Isn't it good just to uh, come into His presence and uh, and worship Him and feel His Spirit here with us? Isn't that good? Amen. Well, uh, in light of that worship, I just want to lead us in another time of prayer. I just want to pray that uh, I just feel led to pray for us as we get started this morning. So why don't we pray? God, I just, uh, I rejoice in who you are, God. Lord, and that, as that song we're singing, as this text we're about to read calls you the cornerstone, God. Lord, you just, the weight of all that we are rests on you, Jesus, and I just, I can tell that this morning, God. And Lord, uh, what other hope do we have, dear God? You carry all our weight, but dear God, there's nothing else that can hold us, Father God. There's nothing else that can support the the hope of our, our eternity. There's nothing else that can support the hope of us getting to heaven. There's nothing else that can support us having the hope of satisfaction here on earth but you, Jesus. It's literally you, dear God. And if we don't have you, we don't have anything, Lord. And I just, uh, I, I worship you for that this morning, God. And I just pray, Lord, as we start today, God, as, as before we even dive into your text, God, I just pray, God, that as we were just saying that song, Lord, I pray that your spirit would just set a fire in us, God. I pray that you would come over us again, Lord. And God, I pray that we wouldn't be content, God. I pray that we wouldn't be content with just having mediocre quiet times. I pray that we wouldn't be content with not getting up in the morning to pursue you. I pray that we wouldn't be content to watch our neighbors go to hell. God, I pray, dear Lord, literally, I pray that we would want more. And I just pray that through this time this morning, dear Lord, that you would come over us. God, I just pray, Lord, that you would move your people to repentance this morning. I pray that as we preach your word, dear God, I believe your word has power, dear God, and I believe that you call your people to repent. So I pray, Lord, if there's anything in my heart, dear God, I pray that your word would penetrate me as I speak. And God, I pray that your word would penetrate this crowd, God. Please, God, please, I'm I'm asking you for that. And dear Lord, I know that your word says you supply generously whatever we ask, God, if we believe it and don't doubt. Lord, And I I just believe that you're going to move people to repentance. God, please move today. Thank you for being so good. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, good morning, church. I am glad to be here with you this morning. I'm excited uh, to start a new series today. So if you have a a Bible, I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's before 2 Peter now, 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, be turning there. This is going to be our dwelling place for the next several weeks as we start our new series today. You can see the little logo up there, Built to Last. In this series, we're going to be doing a couple things. We're going to be looking at the purposes of the church and our individual purposes within the church. So we're going to be looking at why God created the church and our purpose in the church as it exists. All right. So we're calling this series Built to Last. And uh, as we read this text we're about to dive into in 1 Peter 2, we're going, we're, you're going to see why we're calling this series Built to Last because Peter's about to describe the church here as a bunch of living stones that are coming together being built into a spiritual house. Into a spiritual house. And this spiritual house that he's talking about, I don't know how many of you guys have a history with the Old Testament, right? You know, you know something that happened in the Old Testament, so the books before in the Bible before Matthew. But this house he's referencing is probably the temple. So in the Old Testament, this is what happened. Like They had to have a place for God's presence to come and dwell among his people. And so they built the temple, and when they built this temple, God's presence literally came down in that temple and dwelt with them. The presence of God was there. The Bible says that he was there so heavy that it was like a thick smoke descended on the building, right? So God was there. Now we're not in the Old Testament, right? We're in the New Testament. Christ has come. Now there is no temple. 
And what we're about to see Peter telling us in this text is that now instead of a temple where God dwells, there's the church where God dwells. And here's the cool part that I want you to see is that we're the stones that make up the church where God dwells. So when you think about that, what what this text is trying to show us is that God literally dwells inside of you and me if we're part of the church. Guys, that should really literally just blow you away that the God who created the universe comes down and dwells in us. So each individual here that's a born-again believer is an important part of the big C church, right? Because we're all these stones making up this building. And uh, one thing I, I want this, uh, this series to teach us is the importance of the church. If the church is us, we make up the church, and it's where God dwells, and each one of us make up a little piece of it, then church is not optional for us, right? It's important. Like, it's urgent. It's necessary. So the way we're going to start at today is how do I become a part of the church? What must I do to be a part of this spiritual house that we're about to read? And the answer to that is simple, guys. We're going to see it in this text. The first thing you have to do to be a part of the spiritual house that Peter's talking about in this text is simple. Believe. I believe. That's what we're talking about today. I believe. So I want to show you in this text how those who believe are a part of the church of God and those who don't believe are not a part of the church. So it's simple today, guys. We're talking about belief. If somebody, you go to the cafe after this and they ask you, what did the preacher talk about? He talked about belief. I mean, it, it's real simple today. So I, what I want to do before we dive into the text is I want to give you my outline. I want you to know exactly where I'm going, and I want you to be able to pay attention and, and see where I'm, where I'm getting from this text. So we're going to talk about five things today, and I know some of y'all are like, five things. Good gracious, we're going to be here a while, right? Not really. We ain't going to be here that long, but five things. Number one, we're going to talk about what belief is not, okay? What belief is not, then, since we, get, we talk about what belief is not, we need to talk about what belief is. So number two is belief is. What is belief? Then number three, we're going to talk about the object of our belief. All right? So if you believe something, you're believing in something. What do we believe in as a church? Then number four, we're going to talk about the effects of our belief. What happens when we believe? And then the last thing we're going to talk about is this. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Will you believe? All right? So that's where we're going. Five things. So what I want to do now is, uh, if you got your Bible, I don't know, uh, we were having some screen problems earlier, so it will be up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start in, uh, let's start in verse 4, if that's all right. So verse 4 says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's what he's talking about. All right, we're being built up as a spiritual house. We are becoming the church. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a a stone of stumbling and a rock of of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous lights. 
Listen to this, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's where we're going tonight, guys. And the hinge of this passage today, the, the, the hinge of this passage is belief. You see, Peter depicts two types of people in this passage. He depicts people who are a part of this spiritual house and then people who are not a part of the spiritual house. And the thing that determines whether you're a part of this house or not is belief. So what this text shows us, guys, and this is, what I, this is where, the point I'm going to drive home today, what this text shows us is that in this world, there are two kinds of people. There are the kind of people who believe upon Christ Jesus as Savior and are in the family of God, are in the church, and there are people who reject Christ Jesus as Savior and who are not in his family. That's what, that's what we're going. So it is impossible to overstate the importance of, of belief. I heard a man say one time, the most important thing about a man is what he believes, and that's true. It's impossible to overstate the importance of belief because the implication here, guys, is not just you belong to the family of God or you don't belong to the family of God. The implication here is that your eternal destiny, whether it be a hell separated from God in Christ or a heaven with God in Christ, is based on what you believe. So what do you believe? If belief is this important, the most important thing that we can do today is decide what belief is. We got to know. Like if, if where I spend eternity is dependent upon belief, I want to make sure I know what belief is. I don't want to have some false definition of what faith is if, my, if faith is dependent on me getting to heaven, right? I want to know what it actually is. So the most important thing you can do this morning is know what belief is, and that's what, that's what we're going to go with. But to know what belief is, I think first it's going to be helpful if we know what belief is not, all right? So what, what is belief is not? So the reason it might be helpful for us to determine what belief is not is that in our society, guys, belief is the most misunderstood thing in our society. Let me, let me explain it to you a little bit. You can leave this place today and go to anybody in the state of Georgia. I would say 97% of people in the state of Georgia. Go up to them. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. You can go find a drunk on the side of the road who's his six-pack in for today and, sir, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus, right? But still, people are lost and dying and going to hell. The reality is, I could go up to people in this church, I'll, probably all of you. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, you're at church. That's a good sign, right? So do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But some of you are still lost and separated from Christ and are going to spend an eternity in hell apart from him. So... Belief is misunderstood. This, this is actually a God thing. I was getting ready this morning. I uh, went back in the back of the school here and was kind of praying. And I come across this. I, I read this this morning. It hadn't uh, come across it yet. It, it explains it well. Uh, John Piper's book, he says this. We are surrounded by unconverted people who think they do believe in Jesus. Drunks on the street say they believe. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they believe. All kinds of lukewarm, all kinds of lukewarm world-loving church attenders say they believe. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. Everybody says they believe. So we got to decide what first belief is not because obviously there's some misconception, right? Let me tell you what the first thing belief is not. Belief is not intellectual agreement, all right? So let me explain that a little bit to you. Knowing the facts about Jesus Christ does not mean you believe in Jesus Christ. 
all right? Because for a lot of people, this is the way it works. They believe in Jesus Christ the same way that they believe in Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, right? They know the facts about Abraham Lincoln. They know the facts about George Washington, and they know the facts about Jesus. They know that he lived. They know that he died. They know that a bunch of people say he rose again. But here's the thing. That kind of faith, that kind of belief in Jesus is not sufficient to bring you into heaven. Because the Bible calls it, the Bible calls this kind of belief out. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to James 2.19. If not, it says this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. James is saying, you think you're going to heaven because you believe that Jesus is one person? You believe that Jesus came to the earth and down on the cross? Even the demons believe. Even the demons bow down, guys. That's not the kind of belief we're talking about. So here's the deal. You can believe in the facts and not believe in Jesus for salvation. It's kind of like this. You can believe that honey is sweet. Yeah, it can be a jar of honey. And I can say this honey is sweet. If I put it in my mouth, it would be sweet. But you cannot experience that honey is sweet because you ain't never put it in your mouth. Right? There's a different kind of, uh, of knowledge other than just intellectual knowledge. It's called experiential knowledge. Because when you put honey in your mouth, guess what? You just don't know it's sweet. You've experienced it as sweet. All right? So guess what, guys? Just knowing the facts, that ain't what belief is. But also, belief is not just a certain kind of religious activity. So here's, here's the way it works in down south Georgia for most of us, right? Many people believe in God, and they believe in Jesus, and they believe in him enough that they know what the Bible even says that people who believe in him should live like. You following what I'm saying? Not only do they know the facts, but they know what the Bible says about people who know the facts. So people who know the facts should read their Bible. People who know the facts should go to church. People who know the facts should go to connect group, should serve in KK, should be a blue connector, should take up offer. Like They know that, hey, the Bible says that if I believe this, I should live a certain way. So what do they do? They try to live that way, right? They try, well, if I, if I believe this, then I got to act this way. And if I act like this, if I do enough good, guess what's going to happen? When I die, God's going to say, yeah, you're good. Come on in because you were a good person. You, you acted like you knew me. Let me tell you something. God's not interested very much in how you act. God's interested in who you are. And Jesus calls this kind of faith out. Jesus, Jesus is not going to let the people who are religious, let the people who think they know how to live for him, let the people who think they act a certain way and they're good to go get away with it. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a bunch of people that fill in churches all across Jenkins County all across the state of Georgia and America and the world who say, Lord, Lord. But Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Guess what? Not everybody's getting in just because you say, I know Jesus, right? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So hey, get, get, get this. These people were religious. Y'all think y'all church folk? These people was church folk. All right? These people knew. They wrote the tithe. They didn't tithe 10%. They tithe 15 Right? They didn't serve in KK once a month. They served in KK three times a month because that's what good people do. Right? I'm trying to encourage some of y'all to do, really, that's what good people do, okay? 
They didn't just serve blue once a month. They served blue every time they weren't serving in KK. These people were church folk. Not only that, they cast out demons. Now, I bet some of y'all are good Christians. Some of y'all like really love the Lord. Some of y'all are just killing this thing we call following Jesus. I'm willing to bet not many of y'all cast out demons. These people cast out demons. Like they, they want up and on me. Like I'm the preacher up here trying to preach the word, and they want up in me, right? They cast out demons. And guess what? Jesus said on the day that these people die, he's going to look at them and say, I never even knew you. Let me tell you, let me, let me explain something to you. Real faith does not work for God. Real faith brings you into the presence of God. You see what Jesus said? Jesus didn't say you didn't work for me. Jesus said, I didn't know you. In other words, who are you? It don't matter what you do, I don't know you. Because listen, guys, when you believe, when you have the kind of belief that the Bible says gets you into heaven, what it means is that you're not just working for God, you're working because you love God. This applies in the real world too. Think of it like this. Think that I love, just say, you know, everybody in here knows me. I tell you, I love Jenna. I mean, I really love her. I buy her flowers, but I don't sign my name to them. I do all kinds of nice things for her. I wash her car. I clean her yards. I buy her extravagant gifts. But she never knows that I actually do any of it. She don't really know me personally at all, actually. I know all about her, too. I know that she doesn't like jelly. I know that when she goes to a Mexican restaurant, there's going to be two things she can order. A chimichanga with no guacamole on it, chicken, or a shredded chicken uh, quesadilla. And right now she's pregnant, so she's going to put cheese on top of it. I know all this stuff about her. I know that her favorite color is green. But I don't actually know her. Like I, don't, I, I only know that about her because when she goes to the Mexican restaurant, I sit in the booth behind her and see what she orders. I don't actually know she don't like jelly, but somebody, so one time the guy Popeye's, I was in the car behind her in line because I've been following her around all day. The guy in Popeye's put jelly on her biscuit and I saw her throw the biscuit out the window. I know that her favorite color is green because I heard her say somebody back there one day when they were serving that her favorite color was green. I, don't, I, I know she like, gets the flowers, but I don't ever sign my name to them. All the while, I'm telling you, yeah, we're dating. We're pretty serious. I bought her some flowers yesterday. Like, listen, but all the while, I don't really know her, right? Is that real belief? Do I really believe that she loves me? No, because it has not brought me into her presence. If I believe that, G that Jenna loves me, what's going to happen is I'm going to start signing my name to those cards. And I'm going to start asking her, do you like this on your biscuit or do you not like this on your biscuit? What's your favorite color? Because guess what? Real belief brings me into her presence. If I believe that she loves me, if I believe that I have a shot with her, it brings me into her presence. Right? And for some reason, I believed I had a shot a few years ago, so it worked out, right? It brought me into her presence. But here's the thing, guys. It works, it works the same way with God. If I really believe in God, I don't just know all about God. I, just, I don't just do a bunch of things for God. It brings me into his presence. There's a difference between knowing. There's a difference between doing. And there's a difference between loving. Because when you have real belief, you love him. Listen, my, my heart this morning, as I was praying for this, my heart, my heart is, it was... I was just at the point of just pleading with God as I was praying this morning because of this. Because the reality is, most of the people who come to church on Sunday morning, 
most of the people have this kind of belief. Listen, they have this kind of belief that says, I know all the facts and I know how I'm supposed to act, so if I do it, I'm going to be saved. That's what they believe. If I act like this and I know this, I'm going to be saved. That's not the gospel. That misses the entire point of the gospel. Listen, let me make something clear. The gospel is not know this and do this and then you'll be saved. The gospel is that you couldn't know enough and you couldn't do enough to ever make it to heaven on your own. You can be the very best person in this room. You can know the Bible front and back and you can, do, you can serve in KK every Sunday because that's the biggest sacrifice you can make on Sunday morning, right? Get up and come serve in KK and you can do all that and on the day when you die, you could still be separated from God because you're not going to be good enough on your own. Listen, the gospel is not know this and do this and you'll be saved. The gospel is that you couldn't do it yourself, so Jesus came and did it for you. Now, what do we do? We look to his cross and we believe on that and say, that's my only hope. If I want to make it to heaven, i got to believe in Jesus. That's the gospel. It's not knowing and doing. It's looking and believing. So listen, that's what belief is not. It's not just knowing the facts. It's not just going through the motion. It's got to be something else. So what is it, guys? What is real belief? I want to tell you what real belief is based on this passage, all right? So listen, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I, could, I, didn't, I didn't even have a dictionary to look up what belief was. I got the definition for what belief is right out of this passage. So if you've got a Bible, open it up, and we're going to look at what belief is out of this passage, okay? What does this Bible say belief is? So belief is this based on this passage. I'm going to Read it to you, my definition, and then we're going to walk through the passage and get the definition. All right, and he'll put the verse up as I call him out. So this, belief is the continual experience of trust and repentance in Jesus. Okay, let let me say it again. Belief is the continual experience of trust and repentance in Jesus. Everybody tracking with that? Continual experience of trust and repentance. All right, let me explain it because y'all look like y'all look like you lost. None of y'all believe, I don't think. That was a joke. I'm glad y'all got it. Y'all was kind of like, is he serious? Did we? All right, so check this out. Belief is the continual experience of trust and repentance. So let's talk about this. The first thing I want you to see out of verse four, put verse four for me, is that this is a continual experience. All right, it is not just a one-time event. Let me say that again. Belief is not a one-time event. All right? The horrible misconception of our church time is that walking an aisle and saying a prayer is belief. That is not belief. That is foolishness and heresy. All right? There are going to be a bunch of people who die and go to hell, and they're going to say, I thought I believed, and Jesus Jesus is going to look at them and say, believing is not saying a prayer. That's foolishness. Nowhere in the, in the Bible is the belief described as a one-time event, all right? Let me just clarify that. This text shows us this. Look at verse, uh, verse 4. It says, as you come to him, all right? So I'm not, I'm not smart enough to figure this out, but I read somebody who was. I can just read. So uh, it, as you come to him, does anybody know what a participle is? No? All right, I didn't either. Don't worry about it. I had to Google it. All right, fourth grade left me. A participle is a word that's made from a verb that uses the adjective. That is actually a participle. It shouldn't be translated as you come. It should be translated as coming to him. 
Because the, the, what that verse is trying to show us is that this is not a one-time event where you come to him one time. It's where you come, you are coming to him over and over and over again, all right? This verse actually means we're coming to him, all right? He shows us that this is something that you don't do one time. You don't walk down an aisle, say a prayer, repent of your sins, get up, you're good from then on out. All right, that's not real belief. Real belief is something that is continual day after day. Belief starts in a moment. All right, that's where we get the one time from. You're born again in a moment, made new. God creates you, but it lasts the rest of your life. You don't believe belief at the altar when you get saved the first time, right? Because let me tell you what happens. If you leave belief at the altar when you get saved the first time, in a few weeks, you're going to be coming back down saying a prayer again. Belief is something that's day after day. It's a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It's continual. It's tomorrow I'm going to wake up and believe in Jesus the same way I did when I called on his name the first time. And the day after that, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to call on Jesus again because I can't make it on my own. It's not just, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. It's every day, God, I'm a sinner. I'm not going to make it through this day without you. It's not a one-time event. Marriage works the same way, guys. So if you're, if you're a man or a woman in here and, and, you, and you've, getting, you've been married, you got married for a reason. And that reason was you got tired of going home at night, right? It got to be 9 o'clock. He's like, oh, I got to go home. The next day, where'd you come? Right, you got off work, you went back to her house, right? That's what happened. You, 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 it, you were like, man, I want this to be continual. I don't want to go home at night. So what happens? You get down on a knee and you put a ring on, right? And so then from the rest of your life, you're going to be waking up. And for the most part, you're going to enjoy it, right? But Jesus is not like that. You enjoy it every day. You say, Jesus, I don't ever want to leave you again. Jesus, I know what I'm like when I'm on my own. Jesus, I know what I'm like when I don't have you. I want you every single day. God, you can't leave me. Listen, belief is not a one-time event. It's a continual thing that happens day after day. It's saying, God, I want you more today than I did yesterday, and I'm going to want you more tomorrow than I did today. So belief is continual. So verse 4, as you come to him, let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 is the, a continual experience. So I, I was reading this, and I was kind of just taken off guard. So Peter defines belief as not knowledge, but as experience. So if you read that, it says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right? He doesn't say, if you know that Christ died on the cross. That's not what he said. He said, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What I want you to, get, what I want you to see is that taste is not intellectual. It's not something you know with your brain. Taste is something you experience with your body, right? It's not intellectual knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. You have tasted and seen that God is good. Peter uses this language, guys, listen, because he knows that people who are saved don't just believe the facts about God. They've experienced the goodness of God. So my question for you, listen, and I've put so much just prayer into this question. And because, because to be honest, if, if I ask you if you believe in Jesus, everybody in this room is going to look at me and they're going to say, yes, I believe in Jesus, right? That's good. You should, you should believe in Jesus. But what I'm asking you, and I've put a lot of thought in this question, a lot of prayer, is not do you believe in Jesus. What I want to know is have you ever experienced the saving grace of Jesus in your heart? There's a difference. One puts you in the household of God. One leaves you damned to eternity in hell. There's a difference. Not only do they, uh, not only do they 
uh, taste the goodness of God. How about verse, uh, verse 9 or verse 6? It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So they not only do they taste God, not only do they taste God and He's good, they also see Him differently than the rest of the world. And right here it says they see him as chosen and precious. So let me ask you this. Is the way that you see Jesus, the way that you talk about Jesus, the way that you picture Jesus in your mind any different than the people in your life who are lost and going to hell? Because the Bible says here that if you really believe, you see Jesus a lot differently than other people see him. Because what did the other people do? They rejected him. They cast him out. They said, I don't have time to repent. I don't have time to give my life to Jesus. I don't have time to stop sinning. Jesus might ask me to give up this. Jesus might ask me to give up that. But when Christians look at Jesus, they say, I'll give up whatever it takes. I'll do whatever I need to do because Jesus is chosen and precious and I want him more than I want anything. Let me ask you this. Is there anything in your life that you look at and say, I love that more than I love Jesus? And like I know your gut reaction is you grew up in South Georgia, right? No, I love Jesus more than anything. Praise God, you know. All right, I've been going to church all my life. I didn't ask you if you've been going to church all your life. I'm asking you, does your life show that you love things more than you love Jesus? Because if I'm honest, guys, and as I've been preparing this message, God's just doing a train wreck on me, there's so many things in my life that I look at and see them as more chosen and more precious than Jesus. And you know what he's doing to those things? He's whacking them off one by one. Oh, you like this more? Gone. You like this more? Gone. This is where that honey illustration I, that I used earlier comes into, back into play. There's a difference between knowing honey is sweet and that sweetness being alive in your mouth, right? There's a difference between knowing that steak is a good cut of meat and it melting in your mouth or you being able to cut it with a fork. This morning, I want to know if, you, if you've ever tasted and seen that the Lord is good because that's belief. Have you ever experienced the love of Christ as he looks at you and says you're no longer condemned for your lustful heart, for your prideful heart, for your selfishness. You're no longer condemned for the adultery you committed or the lie you told. You're no longer condemned for all the sins that hung me to the Christ. Have you ever experienced the love of Christ tell you that? Have you ever experienced the love of Christ fill your heart with joy as the band gets up and plays You Are the Way and in your heart you know that Jesus is the way? Have you ever experienced the joy that comes from realizing that you are a sinner destined for hell and that apart from saving grace, you would have been spending an eternity apart from him, but God stepped in and saved the day on the cross? Have you ever experienced that kind of joy? Belief is something not only that you know, but that you experience. So it's a, it's a continual experience, but what's this a, a continual experience of? It's a continual experience of trust and repentance. And I didn't read verse 1, but I want us to look at verse 1. If you've got your Bible, look back up at verse 1. It says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation. So two things are happening here. Number one, you're putting away something. Number two, you're trusting in something, all right? I've never seen a baby that didn't have to trust his mama to get fed, right? That's what he's saying. Like newborn infants, long, trust, look to God, and put away the old stuff, right? So I don't know if you know what trust and repentance is, but anytime you, ha you believe something, you have to have trust. And so what you're trusting is when you believe in God is that, God, I believe that you are better than sin, I believe that you are better than whatever this world has to offer. 
And what repentance is, listen, repentance is not just feeling bad about sin. There's a lot of people who think they repent because after they sin, they feel bad. Yeah, you should feel bad. That does not mean that you've repented. Just because you cheat on your wife and get caught and feel bad about it, I guess I'd feel pretty bad too, right? Just because you got caught stealing from church, stealing from the offering bucket, just because you got caught embezzling money and you feel bad when you got caught does not necessarily mean you've repented. Repentance is realizing not only that you've sinned against God, but then when you look to the cross, that every sin you've ever committed hung, hung Jesus on that cross. And repentance is agreeing with God that, God, I did that, and I'm sorry, and I don't want to do it anymore. And here's the good thing, guys. When that happens, you're no longer, you're no longer going to be punished for the sins that you committed in the past because you can look forward and see Christ on the cross who's already took the punishment. Trust and repentance. Let me tell you this, guys, and I'll move on to the next point. As Christians, we do not get the opportunity to make peace with our sin. I want to tell you that again. As Christians, we do not have the choice to make peace with our sin. If there's a sin in your life, if there's a sin in my life, and you recognize it, you better do everything you can to kill it, because if not, it will kill you. Belief is a continual experience of trust and repentance. So let me ask you this. Do you continually experience God in trust and repent? That's, that's what belief is. That's what real saving faith is according to this passage. But then there's the object of our belief, all right? So number, point number three, I've given you belief is not. I've given you belief is. Now I'm going to give you what the object of our belief is. So every single belief has an object, right? I, I want you to think through that with me. If you believe that you have enough money in your bank account to pay your power bill, the object of your belief is the money. If you believe that your spouse is going to pick the kids up from school, the object of your belief is your spouse. When you believe something, it has to have an object, right? So when we believe, in the, when we have a continual experience of trusting in God and repenting, then what we believe in is Christ. Let me explain that to you, all right? Peter uses three Old Testament examples here to talk about Christ. So I'm going to run through all three of them really quick. He uses three stone examples. He calls Jesus the cornerstone. He calls Jesus the living stone. And he calls Jesus the stumbling stone. And when we have real belief, we don't just believe in some God off in a far, far land that he might let me into heaven. He might not when I die. We don't believe in some God in a far off land that I have to blow myself up if I want to make it to heaven for sure. We don't believe in some idol sitting on a thing that we have to put food in front of to feed him. We believe in the cornerstone cornerstone in the living stone in the stumbling stone whose name is Jesus. All right. So I want to talk to you about these, these three Old Testament prophecies. The first one, let's put verse six up, Mr. Russ. The first one is the cornerstone. So the first prophecy uses, the first Old Testament reference uses the cornerstone. The beautiful thing is that, so I had to do a little bit of research. I don't know. Some of y'all don't know a whole lot about me. Some of y'all do. I'm the kind of guy that if I can't fix it with WD-40, you better call a repairman. All right. That's all I got. I got Jenna's like something's broke. WD forty don't work. Get somebody on the phone, right? That's that's me. All right. So I had to do a little research to figure out what a cornerstone was. 
All right, I've, me and Jeremy were in the office, and I was like, Jeremy, what's a cornerstone? cornerstone? He was like, are you serious? And I'm like, yes, Jeremy, I'm serious. Can you please tell me what a cornerstone is so I can preach this message? So a cornerstone is the stone in a foundation where the foundation is going to come to a point where all the weight of the foundation is going to be supported on this cornerstone. Usually it's the first stone in the foundation that's laid where the wall's going to meet, all right? And so for those of you who don't know what that means, I'm... Welcome to the club. That means that all the weight of that building from that point forward is going to come back really to one stone, the cornerstone. All right? Is everybody tracking? So what Peter is saying here, this microphone's kind of messing up. What Peter is saying here is that the hope of our faith, the hope of our eternity, all the hope that we have, right, is resting on one person, and it's resting on Jesus. Let me explain that. If, and it's kind of like I said earlier, all right? If you are banking on anything to get you to heaven, if you are banking on anything in this world to satisfy you, if you are banking on your wife to satisfy you, your husband to satisfy you, if you are banking on being a good enough person to get to heaven, guess what? Your hope's going to fall short. There's not a cornerstone in this world that's going to provide that's going to provide enough support to get you all the way up to the top of heaven. You can't build enough on any cornerstone to get you there. All right, But when I put Jesus down as my cornerstone and he's where all my hope of eternity rests, he's where all my hope of making it to heaven rests, he's where all my hope of being saved, uh, he's where all my hope of being satisfied on earth rests, guess what? I can go a long way up. This is good news, guys. This is good news. There is nothing in this world that you can build on that's going to satisfy you. But if you build on Jesus Christ, you can put any weight. You can put the weight of your children. You can put the weight of your marriage. You can put the weight of your life on it. And guess what? It's not going to crumble. Christ is going to be there. It's like those lyrics. I didn't even know they were going to sing this song this morning. And those lyrics in that song, I had this song referenced already. It says, this, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Come what may, it could be hell or high water. My cornerstone's going to stand. That's solid ground, guys. And I want you to think about that. Like, don't let it just flow over you. Let me ask you something. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? For most of you, lose your kids. Like, I'm just starting to experience a little bit of that fear. Like, Jenna's 34 weeks pregnant. We had, we, uh, had a little scare the other night where she was having contractions. I'm freaking out, right? She's like, we got to go to Augusta. So I'm like 107, just like getting there, right? She's like, you're going to kill us before we get there. <laughs> like, I can't imagine losing Danny. I can't imagine. Some of you can't imagine losing your kid. Some of you, if your money was gone, you just didn't, you wouldn't know what to feel like. But here's, here's what I'm telling you. When Christ is your cornerstone, anything in this world can be taken away and your hope still stands. Cancer, loss of a child, loss of money, anything can stand on it. So he calls him the cornerstone. Then he calls him the living stone. So let's put up verse 4, Mr. Russ. He says, uh, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So he calls Jesus a living stone. This is another uh, reference back to the Old Testament. But why would he call Jesus a living stone? Think about this with me. There's two reasons. Number one, I want you to think, think with me for the crucifixion, about the crucifixion for a second. At the crucifixion, Jesus was flogged. You had to. You, you probably missed this because I missed it for a long time too. I, I didn't know somebody until somebody pointed it out to me. You had to compare the counts. Jesus was flogged twice. 
So a flogging means they took a cat of nine tails and took it across his back until he was physically not able to stand. And then when he got not able to stand, they would lay him on his side and then they hit his chest. He was flogged twice until his body was just a mangled pile of meat. They blindfolded him and punched him in the face. Imagine the bruises that are coming up at this point, right? Then they put on him a 500-pound cross and told him to drag it to the top of a hill. Probably doesn't have enough strength to do it at that point, but he's forced to. Then when he gets there, they, dra- they drive nails through his hands and through his feet. And on that cross, he's forced to work to breathe. And the way this would work, he would push up on his nail, the nail driven between his feet to get a, 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 a air full of lungs, and he'd come back down. Slowly but surely, gas would fill his lungs as he'd come back down because he didn't have enough strength to exhale what he had just inhaled. And there... On that cross, he stayed for a few hours and died. Now, I want you to imagine that. Like, he's dead, right? Like, why are you calling Jesus a living stone? He's dead. They put him in the ground. Caesar puts guards around him because he's like, I don't want nobody to steal his body. This fool's dead. All right? They put him in the ground. Three days later, they come back. The stone is rolled away, and Jesus is alive. Jesus is called the living stone because he's alive even though he died. So Jesus is the living stone. But still, there's another reason they call him the living stone. Get this. They call him the living stone because in verse uh, 5, can we put verse 5 up there? He says, you yourselves like living stones. So not only is Jesus a living stone, but he, there are other living stones. Jesus is also the living stone because when we come into contact with Jesus as the cornerstone, when we lay our life as a stone on top of his, guess what happens? He brings us alive also. We were as dead as rocks, guys. I want you to think about it. I've never seen a rock talk. Dead as rocks. God took a rock that was dead and made it alive and made a sinner like me be able to preach this morning. Think about it like this. When Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, the crowds yelled out. They said, uh, the crowds were crying and the Pharisees come up to him and said, they say, you let these crowds worship you. And this is what he says. He says, if they kept quiet, these stones would cry out. Guess what, guys? Jesus has made stones cry out because we were just as dead as stones and God made us alive and now we're worshiping and praising him. What I want to know this morning is have you ever come in contact with a living stone so much so that you were a dead, lost sinner? Now you have life in him and you're crying out praises to him. Jesus is the living stone. I want want you to understand the weight of what I'm telling you. Because of your sin, you were destined to spend an eternity of suffering the wrath of God. And let me explain what wrath is to you. Wrath is not an outburst of anger. So some people think that that what wrath is, is when somebody just like a parent just loses their junk and goes crazy on a kid, right? That's not what wrath is, all right? God doesn't have outbursts of anger. What wrath is, is the calculated response of a sin against the holy God. So God's not up in heaven throwing a temper tantrum when people sin against him. What he's doing is he's punishing each person who has sinned against him in direct proportion to what they deserve. That's what wrath is. You will never get more of the wrath of God if you die and go to hell than you actually deserve. But here's the thing. You deserve infinite wrath because one sin against an infinite God deserves infinite wrath. If I kick a dog, I'm probably not going to go to jail. If I kick the president, I'm going to go to jail for a long time. 
Who you sin against matters. When you sin against an infinite God, you deserve infinite wrath, all right? So you were destined for that wrath. Check this out. The wrath was pointed at you, laser-focused. God was going to pay you back for everything that you had done because you deserved it. It's not because God's mean. It's because that's what's right. Sin must be punished. Crimes must be punished. Sin must be punished. Now, instead of that sin being punished at you, Christ takes the laser of God's wrath and points it on himself at the cross. Imagine this. You're standing before a dam that's 10,000 feet wide and 10,000 feet tall. And in that dam, you, you can see a spring of water come loose. And then it starts to crack. And all in a moment, that dam busts forth and the water's coming at you. You don't stand a chance. 10,000 foot wide, 10,000 foot tall. At the last second, the ground breaks open in front of you and, and sucks up all the water. That's what God did for you in Jesus. Jesus drank the wrath of God down to the last drop. This matters, guys. Not only that, he calls Jesus the stumbling stone. Let's put verse 8 up. So this is the last reference, he says, of a stumbling stone. In this passage, Jesus is called the living stone, the cornerstone. Lastly, he's called the stumbling stone. So uh, verse 7 and 8. So the honors for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, verse 8, and a stone of stumbling. Why does he call Jesus a stone of stumbling? Because here's why. Some people are not going to believe in him and are going to die separated from him. Check this out. Some people are going to look to Jesus and say he's not worth it. That's the, he is, but they're going to look to him and say he's not worth it. He's not worth me repenting. He's not worth me giving up my sin. He's not worth being in charge of my life. And guess what's going to happen? They're going to be on their way to heaven, and they're going to stumble over the rock that is Jesus, and they're going to spend eternity in hell. Jesus is the stumbling stone as well. So... He's the object of our faith. He's a, he's a cornerstone, he's a living stone, and he's a stumbling stone. Last thing I want, one of the last things I want to show you is the effect of belief. So let's, let's put verse 6 up there. So I've showed you what belief is not, what belief is, the object of our belief, and lastly, the effects of our belief. What happens when we believe? All right, that's an important question because if belief is this important, we need to know what happens when we believe, right? So what happens? Here's what happens. Verse 6 Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I could literally talk to you about the effects of salvation all day, but I want to talk to you about the main effect of salvation, all right? The main effect of salvation is that you will never again be put to shame because of Christ. Think about it like this. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've experienced rejection? A person looked to you and said, you're not good enough. I don't want you. Think about the shame that comes along with that. I Think about that shame. Think about the shame of failing at something you thought you should, see that, should succeed at. Everybody's looking at you. They know you failed. They know you're a failure. That's shame, right? Now, remember, the, or think about the shame of, of sin being exposed. When people look at you and say, you're a sinner. They, something you didn't want anybody to know comes out. Everybody knows it. Think about the shame that goes along with that. Now know this. For the Christian... There is no longer any shame that this world can put against you. And here, in Christ, the people who looked at you and said, you're not good enough, you can look at them and say, you're right, I'm not good enough, but Christ is. For all the times you failed, you can say, you know what, I did fail, I've been constantly failing, but Christ didn't fail on the cross. For all the times that your sin has been outed and people know stuff about you that you didn't want them to know, that's happened to me a lot, guys. I can look at them and say, you know what, I am a sinner, but Christ died for it. 
This allows us to own our insufficiency. And let me tell you the main way this is going to be played out. I love thinking about this. Just, just think about this with me for a moment, all right? On the day you die, you will stand before God. I'm talking about a perfect God who has never sinned, a just God who punishes sin, a loving God who wants to save us from sin. You will stand before him and he will look to you and not say, depart from me, I never knew you. He will look to you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because of your goodness, not because of your faithfulness, but because of Christ's faithfulness. So that brings me to the last question, guys. And I thought hard about this. My last question is this. Will you believe? Will you believe? Nobody else in this room can believe for you. I can't trust you to continually experience God and repent of your sin. I can't do that for you. On the day I die, nobody's going to be responsible for my belief but me. Let this humble you guys. This is all you have to do is believe. As I've talked about, as I've defined in the scripture, that's all you have to do. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can contribute to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what Jonathan Edwards said. So let this humble you. What I'm asking you, and I want to leave this question with you. You may be here for the first time and realize, I've been like those other people who thought they believed. And I realized I hadn't. I hadn't ever believed. Or you might be here, and this is your first dealing with church. I don't know where you come from. And you realize, I need Jesus because I'm not going to make it without him. I don't know what your experience is in today, but I'm asking you, will you believe? So this is what I want you to do. I'm not asking you to accept Jesus into your heart because to be honest, Jesus doesn't need your acceptance. You need Jesus, all right? What I'm asking you is if you need Jesus today and you want to be saved and you want to believe upon him for salvation, will you just raise your hand today with for us? And we want to celebrate with you. Somebody's going to come pray with you. If you, if you today and you want, you want to call upon him for salvation, will you just hold your hand up? That's, that's good. That's good because we're saying we believe then. That's fine. That's great. But let me tell you something, guys. If we believe this, if we say that we believe that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation, it should literally wreck our lives to live on mission for Jesus Christ. Connection Church Millen should be an absolute unstoppable force if this is what we really believe. We should live our lives on serving other people. We should live our lives for the salvation of other people. We should live our lives being generous to other people. We should live our lives longing to be in community with other people. If you're saying you believe this, that's how your life should look. Mine doesn't look like that sometimes. So this altar is going to be open this morning, and I just want to leave it open. If you want to come and pray today, would you just come and just call out to God and say, I believe, but I want, I want to believe you more. So that... That's what we're going to do. As I close, the band's going to come up, and this altar's going to be open for you to worship, guys. Father, I thank you that you use a man's feeble words like mine. God, I'm nothing, but I trust you, and I trust that you can use my words to glorify your name. God, I just pray, Lord, that if somebody be damned today, that they would go to hell over our waiting arms trying to get them to Jesus, God. Dear God, if somebody is determined not to accept you, I pray that they would do it only over our dead bodies, God, because we want them to be saved so bad. God, I pray that you would wreck our world as we believe in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.